you are listening to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroidis. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at NixonFoundation.org. The topic on this edition of the Nixon Now Podcast is President Nixon's view on the role and machinery of government and the administrative state. Joining us is Dr. John Marini, Professor of Political Science at the University of Nevada, Reno, and a Senior Fellow of the Claremont Institute. He is co-editor of the Imperial Congress, Crisis and the Separation of Powers, and author of The Politics of Budget Control and Unmasking the Administrative State. Dr. Marini, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Just to start off, uh, could you give us a uh, sort of an overview of what, what does it mean, what does the administrative state mean um, in American politics? I think what it means is that more of the activity of government is put into the hands of those that have specialized knowledge to solve the various policy issues, and it ends up minimizing the authority and the power of those who are elected to office, who are supposed to hold the reins of power really over the apparatus, the bureaucratic apparatus. When we think of the administrative state, we usually think of bureaucracy, which is, of course, an important part of it. But it also has a kind of specialized knowledge that gives it authority that in many ways is uh, intimidating to politicians. They think that the uh, that the those who have specialized knowledge can answer questions better than they can. And in some technical areas, that's true. But when it comes to politics, that's not necessarily true. There probably is no really good specialized knowledge that derives from, say, social science in terms of answering questions that are not scientific questions or technical questions. And yet more and more, all questions are being put into the hands of those who have this rational authority is what I call it, uh, and this is what it was intended to be earlier, uh, rational or scientific authority. And so it's really a threat to political rule. I mean, it makes it impossible for the people who elect those to office to be able to have any real control over those who actually govern or who actually make the decisions because they're given safety in terms of having not to go up for election. They're given safety because they're supposed to be valued advisors to to the politicians. But when they become paramount, in other words, when they establish the agenda, when they determine the most important questions, then, of course, it becomes a, a crisis of constitutionalism, a crisis of political rule. Now, my recent book, I just came out with one this year called Unmasking the Administrative State. It's a book of essays over a long period of time. I, I, I've come to the conclusion after 40 years of studying this stuff, I've, I've been doing it a long time, that rational rule, this rule that is established through the authority of, of bureaucracy that's dependent upon science and social science, is incompatible with political or constitutional rule. And so you have a crisis of constitutionalism that arises whenever the authority of the political is imposed in an important way on the administrative state. And the first person who did try to do that was Richard Nixon in his second term when he won re-election in 1972. 
Nixon was very clear about what he was going to do. And that transformation in his presidency between 68 and 72 was so fundamental that even the New York Times at the time, in 1972, said this Rick Nixon's reelection was like a different party took control. You remember what he? Well, you're probably too young, but what he did in '72 is he he made everyone who was in his administration turn in their resignation, everyone, including Henry Kissinger and all of them, because he said he was tired of having appointed people to office who then go native. In other words, actually become part of the of the administrative structure and ignore what it is that the president once done. So after 72, he was, he was embarked on a, on a real collision course with what Washington had become in the 1960s. And that is it had become a centralized administrative state and both parties had participated in doing that and both branches up to that point both presidency and Congress had participated in centralizing authority in Washington. What Nixon saw, I think, was you can have this kind of rule and consent of the government. It's, it's not going to be possible for people to consent to government if more and more of the activity of government is placed into the hands of those uh, of the administrative or of the administrative structures, the administrative state. So, so much of the activity in modern organizations, not just, not just in politics, are structured around these rational administrative organizations. And those organizations take on a life of their own, and they, they establish a defense of their own. So what was originally established as a nonpartisan mechanism in other words, the, the apparatus that, that is established and given civil service protection was thought to be nonpartisan, so both parties could work with because it didn't it, it, it supposedly was not partisan. But once it became a defender of the administrative state, anybody who opposed what the administrative state was doing became really an enemy of it. And Certainly in our time, the, the greatest, the, the most uh, uh, outspoken, those who publicly wanted to make an issue of this was first Nixon. And Nixon, of course, we saw what, what happened there. Uh, and, and then Reagan did it, but he didn't do it in the way Nixon did by trying to directly confront the administrative state. He saw that's very difficult, maybe impossible to do because Congress is too much tied into it. So Reagan did through executive orders uh, uh, and through various things that gave you know people uh, bills like the reconciliation bill, the reconciliation aspect of the uh, Budget and Empowerment Control Act. He tried to rein in the bureaucracy through executive control. The OIRA, the attempt to go after administrative rulemaking by regulating it from the White House, those were those were indirect attempts, and Nixon, and Reagan's attempt was then to try to delegitimize the the bureaucratic apparatus, and he did that in his first inaugural when he said, "Government is not a, the solution to our problem. Government is the problem." 
And that resonated publicly. It resonated so well that even liberals began to have to backtrack on a defense of big government. So you have in our lifetime, you had Nixon, you had Reagan that saw the problem. And I think Trump sees the problem in in the same way, not politically quite the same way, because he doesn't come out of the political world. But what he's trying to do is, is, is to address the same problem. How do, you, how do you make the people become a force in politics again? Because what you have is just organized interests that run Washington, specialized interests that have been built up over 50 years and more. So all of this now has, has and this is not merely a problem of, 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 the, of, of America, because all governments have become bureaucratic in a certain way. I mean, you can see it in the way the European Union has established kind of rational rule over all of Europe, which undermines political rule of the nation state. And now you're seeing a little pushback in things like Brexit. But this has been a fundamental problem now for 50 years in America, the administrative state. And it's undermined the separation of powers in the Constitution. It's made it very difficult for the two branches to get along, particularly if there's a disagreement over how powerful the administrative state, how much activity must be done there, and how hard it is to, even Reagan tried to put more back into the private sector, into civil society institutions just as Nixon intended to do. Even as early as 1969, Nixon was talking about decentralization because he saw that centralization had really posed a problem for the American government. He had been in Congress in the 40s, and he saw that Congress did different things. They made decisions in different ways than when he was a congressman, when he could make a lot of those decisions himself. He saw these people had staff. They had all kinds of ways in which it made it harder for a congressman even to do his job as a representative. Where do you um, where do you trace the origins of the administrative state to? Are they, I mean, do you trace it at the New Deal? Do you trace it at the advent of the National Security Act of nineteen forty seven? Where do you what, what are the origins? Well, I'll tell you, I, I am a political theorist. So I trace it further back. I trace it back to the political thought that was established, that established the legitimacy of the rational state. And that was in German German thought, Hegel's thought, in uh, in the 19th century. And the political movement that was mobilized by this conception of the of the rational state, what we would call the modern rational state or the administrative state, whatever you want to call the state as a concept now, was established by Hegel theoretically to establish the rule of organized knowledge rather than politics as the criterion for advancing progress in human in human history in human time. So progressivism. Progressivism was the political movement of Hegelianism, or philosophy of history. It was a rejection of the natural right arguments of the American founding. It was a rejection of the understanding of nature and reason that still remained as a 
important way of thinking about politics at the time of the American founding. So the American founding was established by a philosophic tradition going all the way back to the Greeks. Hegelian is the modern thought, the modern is established on the foundation of, of what is called philosophy of history. It's a rejection of the view that human nature even exists or is intelligible, that it's human history that establishes the meaning for human life. And it's a complicated doctrine, but let's just put it this way. The progressives as, as political, uh, as, as political theory was established in the, po in the modern university at the end of the American Civil War, the first American university that was established on the basis of German thinking was Johns Hopkins University. It was the first freestanding graduate school in America. And it was the place where Hegelianism established its intellectual authority. All of the social sciences in the period at, at the end of the uh, American uh, in the last quarter of the American uh, of the 19th century, the intellectual world was 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 fundamentally transformed by by that, it, uh, and so all of the progressive uh, Woodrow Wilson, John Dewey, all of those progressives either attended Johns Hopkins or the other American universities adopted the method of John Ho Johns Hopkins in terms of establishing graduate education. And this is, leads to the foundation of the social sciences. You see, the authority for politics for thousands of years had been philosophy. So when the American founders were looking for guides, they looked to John Locke, they looked to Montesquieu, or as Jefferson said in terms of the Declaration, we looked to the elementary books of political right, Aristotle, Cicero, Locke, Sidney. Political philosophy animated the American founding. What animates Hegelian thought is the is social science, which was just developing at the end of the 19th century. All of these social science disciplines, the American Political Science Association, the American Sociological, American Historical, all of these derive their authority from a method of science, no longer understood through metaphysics, through philosophy, no longer understood in a certain way theologically either, because those two were compatible theology and philosophy uh, in, these, in, the, in, in the centuries after the American founding. So the authority of science replaces in many ways both authority of philosophy and religion. And so as it, as it in a sense, uh, diminishes the other authorities, and because, you know, history doesn't, ideas don't change quickly. But by the whole of the 20th century, you could say that the authority, uh, the philosophic authority that established the Constitution was undermined in election by the modern universities. So was and Richard... religion, of course... I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask you, uh, and, was, so how yeah. did this affect uh, Richard Nixon's view of politics? Was Nixon a political theorist uh, that, you know, the, 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 mind that, uh, the mindset that animated the, the founders, or was he a social scientist? No, no, he wasn't a social scientist, and he and he he read a lot. There's no question that he read a lot, and he read a lot of. of but he was essentially, I would say that that Richard Nixon understood politics instinctively through common sense, 
which is the Aristotelian way of trying to understand political phenomenon, which means that what is fundamental in understanding politics is practical reason. So he was more concerned with practical reason or prudence in trying to understand politics, the way he proceeded in foreign policy, the way he proceeded in domestic policy was to think about it in terms of how it is that one can make sense of the phenomenon of history by the experience of history, not by the way in which it comes to be understood by contemporary historians who try to distort the past on behalf of a, of a political uh, stance in the present. So Nixon wasn't, I don't think Nixon was ideological in the normal sense of the term nor do I think Reagan was, nor do I think Trump is. I think all of those people understood politics directly, just as a citizen would understand it, not distorted by any of the lens because of, of, of the idiots, particularly the ideological lens which history imposes and makes genuine philosophy almost impossible. This is why the American Constitution is so difficult for it to work because it's predicated on an understanding of human nature, how human beings act with, uh, in terms of ambition, counteracting ambition. All of those institutions, the separation of powers, were predicated on an understanding of human nature. The denial of human nature, establishing history and its movement, and how it is that we know ourselves, has, has, has completely undermined the the character of the Constitution in the way in which it was intended, although in a certain way they haven't been able to distort, destroy human nature. That's why you get a Nixon, <laughs> or you get somebody who doesn't go along with how history is supposed to unfold. Uh, and so it, it's, it's a very complicated problem because it's both theoretical and it's practical. The problem with social science is that in trying to understand practical phenomena that is understood only through experience, the actions of those who did those things, they create an abstract method of trying to understand practice. And so in a way, it's not clear that they create a greater uh, understanding of the reality of politics. It may be that social science distorts the possibility of understanding reality. The thing that Nixon and most politicians before did and tried to learn in order to help them is they, they tried to understand history as it actually happened. They read a lot of history, whether it was Harry Truman or any of these people. The ones who, who, who tried to understand politics through experience did not necessarily understand it through the lens of the social science. So it's a very... Pardon? Well, I was going to ask you, what characterized um, Nixon as vice president uh, shortly after, you know, he's in Congress for four, um, for six years uh, before the, you know, right after the war, um, Eisenhower becomes yeah. president. Um, Eisenhower runs mm -hmm. a cabinet style government. Um, he's a, he's considered yeah. by many to be a very strong leader, both domestically and, and internationally. How does what characterizes uh, the Eisenhower administration? Is it is it uh, is it Eisenhower's political will, or is it the administrative state at work? Well, I, I think the administrative state is is not yet 
able to be consolidated, even in the Eisenhower administration. But the Eisenhower administration did not do, I think, what Nixon's instinct would have been, even in the 50s, had he been president, say, after 52. Because what Eisenhower wanted was a kind of continuity with the New Deal. Nixon was an opponent of the New Deal. You could see that. The two great things that Nixon, the things that energized politics after Nixon, and that he was a catalyst for it, were two things. But one, his attitude toward the New Deal and his attitude toward communism. Those are the two, the two most controversial issues of that period. Nixon was on the wrong side in terms of moderate politics of Republicans or Democrats. And the Democrats, of course, were not moderate in the sense they were, they, they were the party that was going to consolidate the administrative state. And they, they did it in a certain way after the election of, of Lyndon Johnson in 64. But Nixon was an opponent, but he could not go against Eisenhower. I mean, you remember Eisenhower, when Roosevelt's uh, uh, administration ended in 45, when he died, and even say all, all the way up through Truman, you could say that the administrative state was on hold, the, the, the domestic elements of the administrative state, because the war had consumed the energy of, of the federal government. And it had consumed the resources of the federal government. So if you looked at, say, at the end of the, of the Roosevelt, or even probably the end of the Truman presidencies, the, 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 what, fed, what the government spent its money on was not much different than, than it had been throughout much of American history, because it was primarily in terms of national defense. But what Eisenhower, when, when, I mean, Roosevelt's aspirations, of course, were to build a, a much more modernized administrative state, but he didn't have the opportunity to do it. But when I comes along and doesn't oppose the expansion in, in theory of the administrative state, but in fact helps to, to initiate it because he created the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, that, that was a new kind of what that did is it established the connection between the interest of legislators and domestic, and, and domestic spending by the federal government. It made it possible for congressmen to be able to, to get a political benefit from how they use public monies. So in expanding that element, the domestic element, which, of course, is much more completely expanded by, by the time you get to, to Lyndon Johnson, then you have a different kind of, of, of government because you have a government in which subsidies and tax incentives or tax make it necessary for almost every interest, economic, social interest, to become a player in Washington. I mean, just as an example, if you went back and looked say, 1963, 64, before the Great Society got moving, and you went to Washington, you would find no major corporations that had headquarters in Washington. There was no need to lobby Washington because most of the, most of the economic companies had, they had, wherever their businesses were, if they were in New York, they lobbied Albany. If they were in Pennsylvania, they lobbied Harrisburg. 
So it was necessary for them, of course, to lobby in the places where the governments impinged on their interests. But once it went to Washington, once the interests were brought to Washington, that worked for everybody. Just wa- you'd lobby Washington. Washington after six, after the sixties, everybody had a, had an office in Washington, including the states and local governments and associations and mayors and every other level of government organized itself around Washington. There was only one place that decisions were made, and that was in Washington. And Nixon saw that, and he said at, at, when he won, won in seventy two, and one of the reasons I think he wanted to win very big is because he knew he was going to be engaged in a big struggle after 72. Going back to and, 19... And of course. I know I wanted to ask you, going back to 1960 and, and the way forward and the, and the, the change of, uh, of power shifting to Washington during, during, the, during the whole 1960 period, was there a pivotal yeah. point at all during the 1960 campaign? Were there marked differences between President... Uh, you know, then-Senator Kennedy and Vice President Nixon uh, about the way forward? Yeah, there was. In fact, Nixon himself wrote that in his, in his, uh, his, when he wrote his autobiography after that. He said the choice in 1960 between Nixon and between himself and Kennedy was going to be the choice between whether there would be a free society or a bureaucratic society. That's, what, that's how he played. That's how he put the stakes of that election in that kind of clarity. He said, this is the time when the decision will be made as to whether we will have a, a free society or a bureaucratic society. Now, you'll notice at that time, right about that time in the late 50s, early 60s, this was, this, it was going to be a question of what, how big Washington was going to get. That's when Nick Reagan started corresponding with Nixon, too, because Reagan, too, understood what was happening with that centralization. If you ever want to see his, if you ever want to look at that, just just read his uh, speech that he gave on behalf of uh, Barry Goldwater in 1964. He was very clear on on what this meant too. So I mean, you know, I think Nixon understood that, but you know, the dynamics of Washington once Congress transformed itself from what it had been, primarily a representative and lawmaking body in which the political activity of the, particularly the House and even the Senate was to keep your bases in your state uh, well attended to. Once it became clear that you could better attend to your interest within the state from Washington, all of the incentives about the, from, from the point of view of Congress began to change. I mean, so they began to be, rather than, resisting centralizing authority in in Washington because they knew the only way to centralize administrative authority in Washington was to establish a bigger executive branch bureaucracy. What that meant is Congress was always afraid of giving the president great power over the administration because it knew it would be an imbalance of power if the, if the executive used that administrative power in a way that was incompatible with the, with the way in which how the, the, the members of the House and, and, and the Senate uh, wanted to participate. But from, I would say, my, my calculation in, in studying this 
is the, the centralization occurred roughly between 64 and 74, the centralization of administration. And Congress then transformed itself as a body from primarily a lawmaking body to an administrative oversight body. That was the way in which they thought they could participate on an even, uh, uh, in an even-handed way to which they would have as much access over the bureaucracy as the president because their committee structures near the executive branch bureaucracy, they had long, uh, ongoing and long-term ways of overseeing. And so that meant empowering subcommittee chairs, giving a lot of power to those, those chairs and enabling them to participate in the way in which the budgets were formulated and all of those things that were necessary for them to be active in terms of administrative oversight. So in that period, they, you know, the, the, the Congressional Reorganization Act, uh, all of those kinds of things were attempts to make it easier. They, they completely advanced, they, they created big staffs for themselves, committee staff. They became a different kind of body because lawmaking wasn't going to be the important function. They were going to give that authority to the agencies and departments that they created and those, and then the character of government would be established by rulemaking rather than lawmaking. That's what the administrative state is. It means that the rules are established administratively, but they have the effect of law, of course. It's the substitute for the law. The problem with them, the difficulty is, whereas laws are established as general laws that, that, that are established uniformly, Rulemaking is established in a, in a particular way on behalf of particular interests, and the interests themselves are involved in, in the way in which the rules are fashioned. Now, Nixon saw all of that. He understood what was, what, what was going on. Uh, and even by 1970, he had to reorganize parts of his own government, the executive branch. When he, the Bureau of the Budget, which had existed since 21, 1921 was created, Nixon reorganized that as the Office of Management and Budget. There was now an administrative component in managing the executive branch. It, had gro it was growing so, so rapidly. And that's really what you saw then in the 70s, particularly in the battle with Nixon, because they, as long as presidents were like Eisenhower and went along with the way things were, held, were done in Washington, Congress was able to adapt and was able to be important players. I mean, they did have, in the 70s and 80s, great oversight power over the executive, both over when Nixon was president and in those presidencies afterward, all the way through, even through Reagan. Uh, by the so all of those, yeah. But in, in that sense, though, by creating the Office of Management and Budget, by creating a, an administrative organization within the White House and reorganizing the government around new agencies like the Environmental Protection Agency, was, uh -huh. Nixon, was Nixon going along with the wave of the administrative state, or was he seeking to impl implement presidential power on the political process? Well, I think in terms of, say, the Environmental Protection Agency, the assumption is that Nixon created the Environmental Protection Agency. Well, he participated in the way in which it was structured when it became, when it was established in law, but the, the Environmental Protection Agency was already 
utilizing its powers in a decentralized way in the committee structures that were created in Congress. What Nixon wanted to do, and he saw that a lot of these people that were involved in the environmental, they were, the, they were people that were completely, in, in a way, we, they would call them environmental wackos at that time. You know, they, 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 their interest was just completely tunnel-driven in terms of looking at that. Nixon knew what Nixon wanted to do, because he knew that it was going to be created. He didn't have, in his presidency, ever, even close to any numbers that made it possible for him to be able to, to, to effectively work with Congress. Now, he worked with them. He had to work with them to get support for the things he wanted, like support for the Vietnam War. But what he wanted to do with the Environmental Protection Agency was to at least have a political and executive control over how it was going to be administered. That was going to be created. That, that was already in existence. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I think Nixon's great concern was maintaining political control, keeping it from the hands of the interests, however those interests understood themselves. I mean, not every public service, uh, everyone who pur- pur- uh, purports to, be on, uh, to, uh, to get into politics for some public good is disconnected from their private good and their self-interest. So uh, Nixon wanted, I think, to, to ensure that there would be as much political control as he could have but then again, remember, just look at just look at foreign affairs. He didn't have control over the State Department either. All of those agencies that he had, look at how he had to deal when he when he when he did the opening to China. He basically had to bypass the whole State Department. He did what he did is have Kissinger engage in those dip, uh, re- diplomatic relations with China in the National Security Council. He did not even inform the Secretary of State, who was William Rogers, his friend, until about an hour or two before he went to the American people and, said, and, and told them about the opening to China, because he knew that the State Department would sabotage that effort. So what you're seeing, and what you are seeing here is, both branches had, were creating their own bureaucracies within the, within the branches. When they couldn't trust Nixon in terms of controlling the budget, they created their own uh, uh, congressional budget office. They created, see, for from 21, 1921, all the way up through Nixon's second till 72, Congress could trust, could, could, could at least say that, that presidents spent money the way they wanted them to, roughly. You know, they, they would argue over things. What they saw with Nixon is he's not spending money the way we want. He was impounding funds. He was doing all kinds of things. That was his direct challenge to the administrative state. And I think both parties in Congress knew it. Could you tell, against. Could you tell us a little bit about the new federalism? Uh, was this at all a challenge to the administrative state as well? Yeah, of course. What Nixon wanted to do, of course, was to revitalize the character of the states as political entities. The problem with administrative centralization is politics is only in one place. That's Washington. And administration is established by Washington, 
And the states then really become ciphers of the federal government. They don't have, they have the attributes of sovereignty that exist in terms of their state constitutions and the federal constitution and the, the various ways in which those distinctions are drawn. But in reality, because all of the money was, was, was collected in the, in the center, then of course it was easy for the federal government to impose its control over the states simply by refusing to give them federal funds in areas of policy disagreements where there was some kind of disagreement that the state wanted to exercise its own prerogatives on behalf of its own uh, constitution or its own political environment. And so, in a way, you could say the states themselves gave up their sovereignty. I mean, when they started petitioning Washington as any other interest, you know that they don't have a conception of sovereignty that, that is established from the point of view of the political order. So Nixon's new federalism was a form of not just decentralizing administrative power, but political power. You, political power is what establishes the character of administrative power. But once administrative power is established, and it's established from the center, then there's no political choice left in the states. They adapt to that. And so the states have adapted. Now, now you're seeing, of course, now that you have very great political disagreements among the states, among the various states, you're seeing states now trying to exercise some of their sovereignty in the case, looking at things like sanctuary cities. Those are ways in which the states now, because they don't like what the federal government is doing. So, you know, th these structures still exist. I'm saying, and what Nixon knew is, these are still political viable units, they, but they have to be used politically. And, of course, if he could have done that in the 70s, it would have spared, perhaps, if it had been successful, a lot of grief to the country you, uh, subsequently. Because when you look at American politics after 68, when Nixon won, and, and already in 68, it was clear that Nixon was, was opposed to the great society of what that was doing. And there was a big sentiment out there in the country. To, to And so he could mobilize that constituency. And by 72, what, he wins one of the biggest electoral victories and popular victories in, in American history. And so that, that, those are ways in which he could have tried to create a new consensus on which both parties then would have had to adapt themselves. But when he failed, what we've had is just a history of, of divided government. And, and when you even when you have control, like the various times when a president had control of both houses of Congress and both houses of Congress and the presidency, those presidencies were very unsuccessful. Carter's was unsuccessful. Clinton's in the first two years, he had majorities in both houses. He loses both houses in two years, very unsuccessful first two years. You have. It, it, it's very hard to establish a political consensus when there's not an agreement between the parties on what the purpose and what the common good or the public good of the country is. And so you have further and deeper divisions each time. So even Obama, who won probably the biggest 
Democratic win since LBJ in 2008, has both houses, loses the House in 10, loses the Senate in, uh, in 14. Uh, so, you know, there's no stability in these institutions because what establishes the order of Washington is the administrative state. And the pol political branch's adaptation to it provides the dynamics of politics in America. So when you get somebody like a Trump who comes in out of the cold, <laughs> out of a non-political, non-ideological world, this guy is, is like completely un, uh, uh, unintelligible to watch, unpredictable. So there's, there's, you know, but this is the same problem. You know, that's the same problem that, that, that existed uh, uh, once, once it became clear that it was going to be very difficult to reconcile political rule and bureaucratic rule. You were talking Nixon saw it, I think. I'm first, sorry, go ahead. I think. I think Nixon saw the, the p p political danger first, as clearly as anyone at, at that time. You were talking about. It was hard to see then. Right, right. You were talking a little bit about the nineteen uh, about the second term. Uh, I mean, how yeah. how President Nixon tried to um, change government even more in the in, in the second term through through reorganization. We have this concept called uh, super secretaries that after after he called yeah. on um, all his cabinet to resign, he also wanted to to move some of his White House personnel into the into cabinet uh, positions so that he could um, have more influence over the um, over the cabinets and, and the various agencies. Could you talk uh, talk a little bit about that vis-a-vis uh, yeah. -vis the administrative yeah, state? That, part of what he wanted to do was to try to reorganize government around the purposes of both what is a public good that is clearly a national public good, the, the, the kinds of offices in the cabinet that had to deal with policy issues from a national perspective and had to deal with them from the perspective of the interest of the country as a whole. So those super secretaries would be the secretaries that had to deal with the fundamentally important political problem. What he wanted to do was to, uh, in, a, in a way, isolate the cabinets that we would call pork barrel cap uh, positions. The, the, the subsidies that are given to all the various interests over the years that these departments in, the, in Washington were created and had become centralized then in Washington and had become in many ways tools of the interests themselves or at least as, as, as much or as important to the, in, to the interests that they were regulating as they were uh, and certainly to the detriment, really, of being able to pursue a public interest. So it, 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 was, it was part of Nixon's reorganization strategy. He had submitted a bill to reorganize Congress early. And, and Congress, uh, you, you, he, he probably knew, they would never pass this thing. They, he, he did this right at the, the beginning of his... Uh, either at the end or the beginning, I, I forgot the exact order, but he, 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 he had a bill that he wanted to do this to make it clear and get Congress to go along with trying to separate those, those things that are necessary and have to be understood in terms of a public good and a national good 
and those things that are much more oriented toward interests of various kinds, economic or social or, or, you know, almost everything in Washington now had a presence by 1972. And when he didn't, when he, he couldn't do it, he didn't, yeah, it had to be in before he was reelected because he couldn't do it. They, they wouldn't do it in his first term. They did, wouldn't pass that re, reorganization act. They, they basically, nobody was for it in Congress because they knew it would sever the connection between their committee structures and those pork barrel kinds of departments and agencies, the things that established the, the subsidies and, and the, the funnel to, to, to the, the, the Treasury, that those, those interests, that those departments were very important in managing. And so Nixon, in his second term, after he won big, said, well, can I do this administratively? What he wanted to do it is through executive power only executive authority, executive reorganization, et cetera, et cetera. And that's when, of course, that's when Congress knew they had to. If he succeeded, I mean, it would just completely upset the way Congress worked. And so Nixon didn't have any support, really, in his own party on that. You said so it wasn't surprising. You said that if he succeeded, yeah. um, Richard Nathan, um, the, who worked as an assistant uh, director of, office, of the Office of Management and Budget under Nixon, wrote a book about the administrative state called The Plot right, That right. Failed. The Administrative President. Administrative yeah, the President plot that failed. Yeah, I remember that. It, it was a good book. Is that an accurate description? Uh, you say if it yeah, succeeded. Yeah, I, I think it was accurate. I read it at the time. I wrote, I wrote on some of these things, uh, you know, in the, in the 70s and 80s. And I think that was as accurate as anyone of the academic world was in terms of seeing what was actually happening. I didn't even know he was in the uh, OMB. So it, that makes sense that, he, 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 had, that he, he was able to see that better because he actually saw what was going on. Uh, but no, that, that was... That was one of Nixon's uh, 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 one of the ways in which he was hopeful to be able to take on this bureaucratic apparatus that had grown up and the structure that had tied it really to the committee structures in Congress and made it hard really for both of them to do their job. I mean, made it hard for the for the president to oversee the executive branch in a reasonable way on behalf of a public good made it hard for Congress to pass laws and to exercise its, its legislative and representative authority in any way that was representative of a common or a public good or a national good. So it, it, was, it, it was a corrupting influence on, on both the way both of the branches could perform their functions. So what you saw subsequently is, of course, presidencies trying to control the things that become important to them and maybe just a couple of things because the government and the bureaucracy is so far flung it's not possible for a single for for a president to be able to try to manage on a very wide scale so you know Reagan picked his battles pretty carefully as to what he was going to fight on uh and I think a lot of this even changed the, the, the dynamics between the executive and legislature and how it related to the bureaucracy even changed 
dramatically in the 90s, and we're dealing with a different kind of understanding of even how Congress oversees the executive branch now. It doesn't so much. The executive branch, in a sense, sets sets the course of, of, of the whole government, and the leaders at the top participating participate essentially in ratifying what the bureaucracy does. So you've got really, if you look at how budgets are made even, typically now since the 90s, it's the leadership of the House, House leadership and staff, Senate leadership and staff, and the presidency and staff, maybe 15, 20, 30 people that decide what's going to be the uh, continuing resolution that's going to keep the government going. So even members of Congress don't have much control over elements of the, the budget as they once did. So it's a different, it's, a, it's even a different world right now. But I think if I were to say anything about it, I think the bureaucracy is more powerful now than it was in any time leading up to this period. Not that it wasn't quite powerful, but it, even when it exercised its power, it had to do it more surreptitiously. And of course, much of the, uh, the animus against Nixon in, in after 72, uh, which was really created in the way in which the, um, the courts, the Justice Department, and the intelligence agencies came to view Nixon uh, because he was a he was perceived Nixon I think was perceived as a threat even in his first term by all of those agencies. They didn't uh, they didn't, and so he in trying to uh, in, in trying to look at how Watergate plays itself out. And at the time I wrote, I, I wrote a, a, an article on it rough saying that the bureaucracy was far more important in what the outcome of Watergate than was commonly understood because most of Watergate took place well below the surface of what anybody knew or saw. I don't know if you know, you may know Jeff uh, Shepard. Correct. I do. Jeff Shepard, who who was he's written he was on Nixon's uh, staff as a lawyer, young lawyer. He wrote a book just in, in 2015 on the real Watergate, and he's in, unearthed a lot of stuff on Watergate that shows that it was a far different kind of scandal than than what it played itself out to be in the public mind and in the public uh, arena in terms of public opinion. But that is a much more complicated event. And, and at the time, I thought it was quite complicated and hard to understand how you could go from winning one of the biggest electoral victories and lose office with no real political quarrel. It was all done legally. There was, and Nixon couldn't defend himself politically. Even his own party made a legal thing of it. Remember Howard Baker saying, "What did the president know, and when did he, and when did he know it?" I mean, they just boxed him in to a a, a, tri, a legal box. Uh, and even Jeff Shepard, now I think he he he, I think Nixon would have been better off early be, going to an impeachment because a lot of the stuff that was private then that he didn't know anything about would have been public in an impeachment. 
in an impeachment hearing in Cong in, in the House, but I don't know. That's all. Once you once you establish the, the legend of what Watergate is, you you don't change people's minds. Maybe in a in, a, in another ten, fifteen, twenty years, if, if depending on how what happens, Nixon's even that Watergate period will be reevaluated. I think because that was that was almost incomprehensible to most observers who weren't American around the world. Here you take a president who had really inherited one of the worst situations that America faced in the whole of the 20th century, stabilized everything in one term, had a very successful first term, was hated, of course, for his successes, really. He got us out of Vietnam. The war had ended. You notice they don't go after Nixon until the peace agreement is tried, is signed in Paris with, with Kissinger and, and, and uh, Lee Ducteau. Uh, uh, and, and it's the Monday after that that the Watergate Committee is created. So there's a lot of lot about that era, era that, that I think uh, uh, historians with more distance where the passions of Nixon had created a lot of passion in politics. And I said at the beginning, it's because of the two issues that were the most controversial, the meaning of communism and, the, and what the effect, practical meaning of the New Deal is or was. Nixon was on the wrong side on both of those. Our guest today is Dr. John Marini, professor of political science at the University of Nevada, Reno, and a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute. Our topic was President Nixon's views on the role in machinery of government and the administrative state. Dr. Marini, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, thank you. Please check back for future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on your favorite podcast app. This is Jonathan Mavroides and your Belinda.